Hi. <laughs> I'm Crystal. I'm Kat. <laughs> and this is Alternative Interests. Oh, you broke out your Delilah voice. It's been a while. I know. I know. <laughs> oh, hello. How are you? I'm really cold. Yeah, it is cold right now. I don't I don't know if I really like cold. I know I really like heat. But I also like cold when you can be cozy, not when it's like cold. My feet go numb all the time. Is that like not good? It's just poor circulation. Mine go. My feet are always cold, but that's cuz I'm on Ritalin. Oh, well, I'm not. <laughs> I probably should be. <laughs> Anyway, okay, here we go. What brand new horror do you have for me today? <laughs> so what horrors do I have for you today, you yes. may ask? I have a great one. Listeners, if they listened to episode 90 or 91 about Steven Stainer, I think it was titled the Kenneth Parnell one, um, they'll remember me mentioning this because this is actually about uh, Steven Stainer's brother, Carrie Stainer. And so it's not necessary to have listened to the Stephen Stainer one prior to this, but uh, if you want to, you should because it's all connected because obviously it's his brother, but I'll touch on that in a second. But anyways, I am going to tell you about Carrie Stainer, otherwise known as the Yosemite Killer. Have you heard of the Yosemite Killer? It maybe it I don't recognize Carrie Stainer. Okay. But I feel like I do recognize the Yosemite Killer. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you about the Yosemite Killer right now. Okay. So Carrie Anthony Stainer was born on August 13th, 1961 to Kay and Delbert Stainer. You're going to recognize the Stainer last name because, again, episode 90 or 91. But. He was raised in Merced, California, and Merced is a farming town known as the Gateway to Yosemite in California. He was one of five children. There were two boys and three girls, and Carrie was the oldest of the two boys. Um, and he was known when he was younger as just a really kind little boy that was always looking out for his younger siblings, especially his younger brother, Stephen. Carrie was described as a quiet child with sometimes a mischievous, with a mischievous, with a mischievous side. But every time they talk about little kids and they're like, "Oh, they have a mischievous side," I think that's fair to say for most kids. Every kid ever, exactly. Like I, I, all kids have a mischievous side. Anyways. Family goes on with life. When Carrie was 11, that is when the major tragedy struck in the family, when younger brother Stephen Stainer was kidnapped and held for seven years by pedophile Kenneth Parnell. But that kidnapped happened in 1972. And so Carrie was 11 years old when this happened. Stephen was seven years old when he was kidnapped. Now, Carrie claimed that around this time, around the time that Stephen was kidnapped, he was molested by a family member. And like later when it's discussed, they're like, well, that kind of makes sense that something like that could have happened because, again, Stephen went missing. So his parents were so preoccupied with Stephen's disappearance and trying to find Stephen that something like that was 
could have happened right under their noses and them not knowing. And then also Carrie not wanting to say anything about it because parents were already going through a lot with having a missing child, right? Mm-hmm. So um, after Stephen went missing, all the children in the family reported that their parents emotionally withdrew from them. Now, remember, this is a family of five. One goes missing. I, I mean, if I'm thinking about as a parent, if I have five children and one of them go missing, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to withdraw emotionally from my other children, especially when I'm probably putting so much energy into trying to find my, my missing child, right. you know? And I think, especially if you have older siblings, if like the child was younger and, and, you know, the rest of your children are older, I think it's so easy to slip into the mentality or it would be so easy. And again, I don't know, cause this has never happened to me and God forbid that it does, but to like kind of forget about them like they're older, they can take care of themselves. I need to find, you know, Stephen. I think that there's two distinct directions that it could go. Mm-hmm. It can either go exactly how you just said, like they're older, don't worry about them. I need to find the baby. Like it's the baby, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or you can turn it into, I've already lost one child and now this one is never leaving my side. We're going to handcuff him to me. He's not going anywhere. Yeah, it so could you totally. Can either, you end up hyper fixating on one or the other. Yeah. And it goes either way, right? I mean, honestly, it could be both at the same time where you flip flop mm-hmm. constantly. Well, and to be honest, I can't even imagine even one ounce of what that feels like. I don't even want to ever experience an ounce of what that feels like, because like you and I have talked about before, that has to be the worst possible feeling in the world is, you know, you and I, we've talked before about when people lose children or, you know, and they're gone forever, but then to have a child be missing and not know what happened. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just... ever having that closure. I, I mean, I want to throw up thinking about, I can't even imagine what that, that emotional prison would be like. Right. It would be torture, torture every single day you opened your eyes. Like I can't. So anyways, Carrie, Carrie said, you know, he felt really neglected by his parents during the ordeal because they rightfully grieved over Stephen and were looking for Stephen. Um, his father, Delbert, says that Carrie endured some really emotional hardships because of the tragic um, incident. Later, Carrie would recall how he uh, right after this is actually super sad um, and it makes me feel bad for like 11 year old Carrie, but that he would wish on stars after his brother's disappearance, um, wishing for him to come back home, and that he wished every single night since he was gone for his oh brother to God. come back. Yeah. Um, this manifested also in some other um, concerning behaviors in Carrie. Um, he often wore a hat after Stephen went missing to try to keep him from pulling out his hair, his own hair. I, I think that was like, uh, an obsessive, like tick to deal with probably emotional pain and it was coming out. It's a nervous anxiety. Uh huh. Yeah. So he had to wear a hat often to keep from pulling out all of his hair. 
He also exhibited some other behaviors that could be concerning at the time and alarming to others around him, but they weren't really addressed or even acknowledged because, again, of what was happening in the backdrop of the family, which was Stephen is missing, right? Yeah. And one of those incidents was um, he exposed himself to one of his older sister's friends um, and just like odd little sexual, like, oddly sexual behavior like that. But again, no one brought, you know, sounded the alarms for it because it just kind of sounds attention seeking. Yeah. 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 Maybe. Well, it's not, but yes. So, um, still, you know, the family went on, Carrie, uh, would go to graduate, um, Merced high school, after graduation, he worked as a window installer at a local glass company, and the people that owned the glass company were actually family friends of the Stainers. Um, he was described uh, by his coworkers and the his bosses as just like a quiet and friendly guy. Like he mostly kept to himself, did what he was supposed to do, was friendly when you talked to him. Then in 1980, the family received massive attention again when Stephen returned after his escaping his abductor, uh, which again, you can hear about in the other episode. Um, At a press conference held outside of his family home, once Stephen was reunited with his family, everyone is seen smiling. And then you can see Carrie in the background in his baseball cap, and he is just standing off to the side not even smiling at all. Like the entire family looks elated. Um, Steven is there, mom and dad. Um, his other sisters are right there. Uh, police, detectives, everyone looks ecstatic and happy to have Steven home. And then there's just like this eerie, just kind of still of Carrie in the background, just kind of like straight faced. And so that, like, the, just seeing the contrast to that picture is actually yeah. pretty interesting. Uh, obviously, with Stephen home, him being gone for seven years, um, all the media attention, there was a book and a movie that came out about Stephen's whole ordeal called I Know My First Name is Stephen. And the whole family was interviewed for that book. And in that book, Carrie says, and I quote, we never really got along that well after he came back. All of a sudden, Steve was getting all these gifts, getting all these clothes, getting all this attention. I guess I was jealous. I'm sure I was. I was the oldest and all that. Then all of a sudden, it's gone. I got put on the back burner, you might say. So obviously, there was some, you know, more, even though I'm sure relief that Stephen was back. Um, it was a huge adjustment, not only for Carrie, but I think the entire family, especially, you know, when you consider everything Stephen had gone through. Yeah. And I think maybe part of that was um, it's been seven years and mm-hmm. to a point, maybe he can convince himself that his parents are incapable of additional affection because they've been so hurt. Yeah. And now their son comes home and all of a sudden they're full of love. They're full uh-huh. of adoration. Yeah. And just seeing that like. Well, and then so all the attention, all the attention he was getting, uh, you know, even outside the family from people, yeah. from media, from locals, you know, everybody. 
Um, Now, when Stephen came back, they continued to share a room. They had shared a room prior to him being kidnapped, um, but they did not get along at all anymore. Like, and which again, I can see that. I yeah. can see how that would be, especially if you listen to the Kenneth Parnell, Stephen Stainer episode and everything that poor kid went through for seven years, that's going to change a person. It's going to change the person who's kidnapped. It's going to change the family who, um, you know, he was away from that whole time. Absolutely. Um, so when Carrie would feel the need to escape, he would often do so by heading out to Yosemite. And what he just liked to do is basically just get lost on the trails. He would pick a trail and he would start walking and he really wouldn't have a direction. And he would just kind of keep walking until he found an exit, basically. Um, sometimes, and this might seem a little odd to people, but I don't know, some crunchy people might not feel this is odd. Crunchy? <laughs> like naturey people. Aren't they called crunchy? Is that a derogatory term? I have literally never heard this before. You've never? Oh my gosh. When I had, <laughs> when I had, uh, my first child, there was literally a, uh, Facebook page called crunchy mamas. And it was like mothers who like believed in like, holistic natural just like they were kind of like you know they're called crunchy because their sweat has congealed what really that's what i think of i thought they were called crunchy because of the granola no no i really thought that they were called crunchy because they ate granola and raw vegetables and all of those have a crunch to them what the fuck anywho (laughs) i i don't know (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Crunchy. So people, people who are natural and like nature and are holistic, they're, they're called crunchy. What does being crunchy mean? Because they are crunchy and they like, it is because of granola. What you, oh oh my, I am right about what, what is the date? Today is January 5th. 2022 i was okay it's and crystal didn't know slang having sensibilities of a counterculture nature lover or a hippie Mm -hmm. derived from the concept of crunchy granola what thank you oh this day this this day is gonna go down in history (laughs) okay so now i feel bad because i have heard people referred to as crunchy before and i literally thought it's because they didn't bathe and they got to that point of being like dirty that you're like crusty no it's because of granola granola is crunchy and so and i added the vegetable people (laughs) (laughs) so how about this carrie was a little crunchy Okay. I'm pretty sure he loved granola, but he also loved to walk the trails naked while smoking pot. I that sounds like a good time to me. <laughs> Especially if it's nice and warm outside and if no one's around, I could see myself doing that, but as soon as I hear, hear a mosquito, I am putting all my clothes back on because I hate mosquitoes. Plus yellow fever. Anywho, um, <laughs> the Carrie just said that's the only way he could find peace was just being out in no, nature I get it. and just walking by himself. Yeah. Um, so it was really great when nine years later in 1989. Um, oh, God. 
start over because I, I thought I was going to say something else and this is not really great. Okay. Nine years later in 1989, Stephen and his family made the news again when he tragically died in a motorcycle accident. Yes. So that was, that was tragic again for the whole family. It was like they lost him a second time. Yeah. And this time... He's it's not coming good. back. Yeah. yeah. So, but at least this time they actually got real closure that he was gone. Yeah. But still, I mean, I don't even think that helps. And you and I talked about this in the last episode. What a tragic life. Yeah. Like seven years old, you're taken by a pedophile, kept for seven years, and then you come back. And then nine years later, you're, you die in a motorcycle accident. I think he was 24 or something when he, when he died. Ridiculously young. It was awful, awful. So uh, awful. Anyways, a year after that, Carrie's uncle, who he was living with and very close to at the time was actually murdered. I couldn't really find, yeah, I couldn't really find a lot of information about that. Carrie was living with him. They were very, very close. But he was murdered, and they found out he was murdered by someone else. It had nothing to do with Carrie, although when I finish this story, you're going to be like, did it? Um, At this point, though, Carrie had a nervous breakdown, which... I don't blame him. Do you blame the guy? Exactly. Um, And a few more breakdowns after that. Like, he was becoming increasingly unstable emotionally, mentally. In 1991, he actually attempted suicide and was dealing with some pretty severe mental issues. He reportedly told a friend that he just would have intrusive thoughts, like just he felt like taking his truck and just driving it through the glass company where he worked. Mm. Um, And he said in those thoughts, like, I just want to take my truck and drive it through and um, kill the boss, kill everyone in there, and then just setting fire to the place. So when his friend heard that, his friend's like, dude, Carrie, I think you need to go get some help. Good. But instead of doing that, Carrie moved to Yosemite. And in 1997, he was arrested on drug possession possession charges for pot and meth. So at that time, he started to rely on on drugs to kind of, you know, deal with the pain and yeah, numb his, it and yeah, his mental issues. Um, later, though, oddly enough, those charges were dropped, and this is going to come into play later on. Hmm. Um, so. In 1997, that same year after the charges were dropped, Carrie's life seemed to kind of turn around when he began working as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge. Now, the Cedar Lodge was in El Portal, California, and it's near Yosemite. It's just outside Highway 140 um, at the Arch Rock entrance to Yosemite Park. So it's like right there. A lot of people go and stay at the Cedar Lodge when they're, you know, going to 
explore Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Um, the job came with a small apartment on the top floor of the lodge. And at the lodge, Carrie was in charge of odd jobs. Like he was basically a handyman, right? He took care of a lot of things. He would fix electrical issues, any mechanical breakdowns. He even like did some housekeeping tasks, like delivering extra bedding or towels. It was, it was a really small lodge. So, you know, picture just a couple people working there, but everybody like doing everything, you know, um, he was often seen eating lunch at the diner, um, at the motel restaurant. So the people who, you know, were local, um, they knew Carrie because he was just always around the lodge. Uh, the, the motel restaurant was a popular place for, for locals as well. At the time, his only real passions seemed to be um, nude sunbathing and hiking. And actually, being nude was like something Carrie really liked, obviously. And so he was a frequent visitor to the Laguna del Sol nudist colony, um, which he visited very, very frequently. And prior to everything, everyone said that he, uh, he was fine when he was there, that he never did anything inappropriate or anything that would raise red flags. He just was a regular nudist in the colony. He's probably at peace there. Well, yeah, he liked being naked. Um, those who worked with Carrie at the lodge said that Carrie was a nice guy and that really, just not anyone that you would suspect of doing or having the ability to do anything bad or anything wrong. You know, he just did his job, kept to himself and he was nice. However, it was while working there that he would be associated with a major crime again. So remember he got charged with possession of meth and, um, and marijuana. And then on February 15th, 1999, three tourists went missing from the lodge. So when I started doing, when I started researching this case, um, I had heard about Stephen Stainer and I was like, oh my gosh, Carrie Stainer too. And I didn't think I had heard about him, but as soon as I saw the pictures of these three tourists, I was like, oh my gosh, I it like immediately flashed back to memories in my head of me like passing by my family television when the news was on and seeing their pictures all over the place. Cause I was oh, around, really? I was nine years old at this time. And this actually happened on my birthday. Oh. So I, I, yeah. So I remember, um, so the tourists were Carol Sund. She was 42 years old, her daughter, Julie Sund, 15 and Sylvina Peloso, who was 16 years old. Now, Silvina was a foreign exchange student from Argentina um, that was a very close friend of Julie's, and she was spending the three months of the summer with the Sund family. So essentially, she was a foreign exchange student staying with the family. She was very close in age with Julie, and so it worked out. Now, Carol's husband, his name was Jens. He couldn't make the trip because of work, but the plan was for him to meet up with the three later on um, in their trip. 
they arrived at the lodge on February 12th for a vacation. They were visiting from Eureka, California. That's where the Sund family lived. And uh, they flew to SFO first and Carol rented a 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix. And then they took that car and they drove it. The, the plan was to drive to Yosemite. Um, they made a stop in Stockton, California for a cheerleading contest at the University of Pacific. And uh, Julie, the daughter, participated in that like cheerleading competition thing. Okay. Um, on February 14th, they headed towards the Yosemite's western slope and they planned to stay at the lodge for a few days. Um, and they had reservations at the Cedar Lodge. The plan was they were going to check in on the 14th and then they were supposed to uh, check out like around the 16th. So on February 15th, the three women hiked into Yosemite National Park. And when they returned that evening, they stopped by the service desk to rent some videos to watch in their room. That was the last time anyone at the lodge or anywhere around the lodge saw the three alive. Okay. The next morning on February 16th, their original checkout day for them, the inn staff went to go clean the room as usual, and they really didn't notice anything out of the ordinary that would make anyone suspicious. As a matter of fact, checkout had already been done in advance by Carol the evening before, and the keys were left in on the room desk right there. Okay. So Jens, Carol's husband, um, the plan was after they left Yosemite, they were going to drive the car back to the airport and then that's where they, at SFO, and that's where they were going to meet Jens. And then what was supposed to happen after that is the husband and the three girls were supposed to fly with him to the Grand Canyon. Now, when he got to the airport and they weren't there, he assumed that they missed their flight or something or that they flew ahead, which I, for me, I'm like, well, if we had already reservations or tickets, I don't know how they could fly ahead unless they were just going to the airport and buying the tickets like then and this there. pre 9-11, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's so I, there may have been like looser terms with yeah, that's true. flight plans and stuff like that, maybe. That's true. I didn't even think about that. When Jens got concerned because the next day he tried to contact them and he he couldn't. He couldn't get a hold of Carol. Um, he didn't really know where they were. So uh, he called the Cedar Lodge. The Cedar Lodge was like, nope, they checked out. Um, and so he called police because... After that, he had also contacted the car rental company and they confirmed that they never returned the Pontiac, mm -hmm. nor had Carol even called to try to extend the rental agreement. Okay. So at that point, police are alarmed. They begin searching the area in and around the lodge where the last where they were seen last alive. Police and Yosemite Park Rangers both were very involved in the search. Originally, they thought that maybe the three had hiked again that morning, the morning of checkout, and maybe wandered off the path and got lost. But they searched all over and nothing. Four weeks went by and still no sign of Carol, no sign of Julie, 
no sign of the exchange student, not no sign of the car either. So maybe I just missed this because I think I, I may have like blanked out for a second. Okay. And I'm real okay it's sorry. okay. No, it's okay. I do that too. In in their hotel room or motel room, like none of their stuff was in there? No, they had checked out. It looked like they when the um But like they had it sounds like they had done like a pre checkout the night before. Uh-huh. Yeah, when they That's, went to go check the room the yeah. next morning to clean it, nothing was there. Their belongings were there, just the keys to the motel. Oh, so they didn't actually, like, check out, check out. They just left their... They checked out the night before as in, like, you know how you can do pre-checkouts? Like, we're leaving early in the morning. We're checking out now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. So, no. Yeah. Huh. Everything was okay. gone. Nothing was out of the ordinary. What about the videos they rented? Uh, they were in the room. They left them there so that okay. they could take them back to the front desk. Yeah. Everything. So family, friends, police, rangers, and volunteers searched in and around Yosemite National Park. They searched by foot, helicopter, and skis, and nothing was found. Like I said, not even the rental car. Then, suddenly, Carol's wallet was found in Modesto. But it was just her wallet? Yeah, yeah, her wallet with all of her money and credit cards still inside was found in Modesto, which is two uh, about two hours away from Yosemite. Where was it found? Just on on the side on the street in the it's like a little suburb, so like on one of the main streets in downtown. Just like just chilling. Right, just chilling out on the sidewalk. Okay. Yeah. So the FBI actually joined the search, and soon FBI agent James Maddock was the lead in charge uh, by the beginning of March. So remember, they had gone missing February 16th, and by the beginning of March, James Maddock was the lead investigator now for the FBI. Mm -hmm. They announced at the time after the wallet was found that I quote, we feel almost certain that the women were victims of a violent crime. Mm. So they were having several press conferences because, again, this I remember this being all over the news at the time. Now, I mean, at, le- at least they're keying in very early that something is wrong here. Yeah. It's not just they can go missing if they exactly. want to go missing. Yeah. Exactly. Now, since the wallet was found in suburban Modesto, the police and the FBI decided to search that area as well, right? If her yeah. wallet was found here, maybe they're here. Maybe they, or somebody has them here. So they interviewed homeowners and business owners and anyone who may have seen them there. Um, at one point, Jens, the husband, offered a personal $250,000 reward himself for any information that would lead to the return of the three missing women, his wife, his daughter, and the foreign exchange student. Um, After a few weeks with other private donations, the reward went up to $300,000. And while leads were, thousands of leads were coming in every day, it was really producing nothing. 
And again, like I said, this was all over the media. Even Carol's parents, Francis and Carol Carrington, appeared on Good Morning America to ask for just the public's help in general for locating their daughter and the girls and for prayers, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, held up their pictures again, just trying to get the word out there because they they want to find them. Um, By mid-March, you know, hopes are fading really fast. On March 18th, a hiker wandered onto the site of a burned-out red Pontiac that was hidden off of Highway 108. And this was in the Stanislaw Forest region, which is a couple of hours away from the lodge where they had stayed. And the CHP verified the car's plates as uh, Carol's rental and they notified the FBI because Man. obviously there was a be on the lookout for, you know, the car rental yeah. and the license plate. Um, early on March 19th, the FBI had secured the scene and the charred remains of Carol Sund and the exchange student Sylvina Peloso was found in the trunk of the burned rental car. But not the daughter? Nope. Uh-uh. Ooh. Both bodies were burned beyond recognition, mm. so they they used the dental records for the identification Man, of those two so bodies. Sad. Yes, and there is a picture that we have up of an aerial of the scene where the and I mean that car was burned. Like it is was it, Is it remote un- enough that people wouldn't have noticed the fire um i think you would have had to have noticed the fire because it was it was a hidden kind of remote area off the highway so i'm sure if people saw smoke or whatever i i yeah i think it was remote enough that you wouldn't really see it off the highway but you could see it from aerial i guess if you were flying above it yeah, or um, there weren't enough people so that even if there was a ton of smoke, there just was no one around to even see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Okay. Now, after this happened, police started receiving notes with a hand-drawn map leading to Julie's body. And on top of the note, it read... And I quote, we had fun with this one. Oh. So they followed the map and Julie's body was discovered on the 25th of March in a remote area an hour away from the rental. So this was in Lake Pedro in Tulum County of California. Okay. The body was badly decomposed because it had been out in the elements that whole time Mm -hmm. and when they discovered her body it was also discovered that her throat had been slit Mm. now obviously you know both families devastated this was not the outcome they hoped for um over the next few weeks after the bodies were found the police and the fbi Uh, made arrests, and they arrested several known sex offenders, drug users, and ex-convicts with a record of violence 
within a 75 square mile area between Modesto and Sonoma. So they were desperate to just figure out who this was. So basically yeah, so they're just doing a huge sweep. Yeah. Of this area between Modesto and Sonoma. And by mid April, they had four men that were considered main murder suspects. Now I'm going to mention these because I, I think it's interesting how they kind of, how their thinking went and how they're like, oh, it had to be these people. So um, the first one was Michael Mick Lairwick, 42 of Modesta, Modesta, of Modesto. He was a drug user who grew up in Tulum County and he had a long criminal record. He, as soon as he was arrested, he's like, dudes, I did not do this. The next suspect was Eugene Rufus Dykes, 32 years old, who was actually... Michael or Mick's half brother. And okay. he was, he's like, well, you're his half brother. You're also a criminal. Uh, you probably helped him with it. And he's like, no, I had nothing to do with this. Then the next person they arrested was Billy Joe Strange, which, by the way, if you're going to be a criminal and your last name is Strange or a murderer, I think, I think that's the way to go. Billy Joe Strange was 39 years old. He was arrested. He was from El Portal and he was a parolee who actually had worked in the lodge um, and restaurant where the three stayed. Um, he, The reason they arrested him is because he had a parole violation, but he denied any involvement. And then Daryl Gray Stevens was also arrested. He was 55 years old because he was Billy Joe Strange's roommate. And he was convicted in 78 for a rape robbery. And he was arrested in March for failing to register as a sex offender. So I feel like they were just like grabbing all of these people. And then any connection a criminal had with another criminal, I think they were like, well, then you guys did it. Like, <laughs> had to be you guys. Well, you guys have motive. Okay. So think about it this way, though. The note said we. And yes. so I so, can see in their heads, they're trying to figure out, okay, who are the worst offenders and who are the wor worst offenders that have a connection to another yes. really bad offender? Yeah. So and, it sounds like they're trying to be smart. Oh, no, they, they they are trying. And I think, too, like, I think a community now was, like, living in fear because these three women were murdered, right? Yeah. And so they're trying to also kind of like put the community at peace that you know we we've caught the people but they're looking in all the wrong places and you're right they they think because in the note it said we the police then i think got it in their head that it had to be two people right yeah it just had to be so there were also about seven other suspects that were considered in addition to these four because of their association, mainly to Dykes. So Dykes, Eugene Rufus Dykes, like was related to the other seven that they had in custody, not related like blood wise, but like either it was a friend, an acquaintance, a roommate, uh, you know, someone that he knew. Um, anyways, detectives also interviewed originally the employees at the Cedar Lodge Motel because duh, right? They're, they're workers at the motel. That's the last place where the three were seen. So Carrie was initially interviewed, but he was not considered a suspect because he had no criminal history. 
Okay. Don't, do you remember his arrest in 91? Yeah. Charges were dropped, so right. that didn't even show on his record. So he had no criminal history. Plus, the police made note that he seemed just pretty calm in their interview. And so we're just going to let him go. Yeah. Um. So there was still no solid lead to go on. The investigation was still ongoing. Those suspects, they were still looking at, but they just had nothing substantial to pin on them, right? So essentially, this case was going cold, and then another body was found. Okay. So unfortunately, this was the body of Joey Armstrong. So July 22nd, 1999, a Yosemite park ranger got a tip from a caller that was worried about the whereabouts of a friend who they had planned to meet up with. Their friend was Joey Armstrong, and she was supposed to go over, but she never did. Park rangers, after they got that call, found her body that day. It was decapitated, And it was discovered near the campground where she had been living in the Foresta community. It's a group of about 30 cabins used by the park workers. Um, Now, she was there because she she worked for the Yosemite Institute and she was in training and that's where she was doing her education. Um, Her goal was was to become a forester of some kind. And so she was living out at the park. Um, Her body was found lying next to the stream, and her head was actually in the water. Mm. Um, The police determined that she had most likely been murdered on the evening of July 21st. So remember, the the friend that was supposed to meet with her was actually supposed to meet up with her the night of July 21st, but she never showed up, and, and so she called the park rangers on July 22nd. Mm-hmm. They also determined that just from the state of her body and all the evidence collected that she fought wildly for several minutes. Mm-hmm. The police said this was a fight from start to finish. Like this girl like was not taken down without a fight. They said that she caused enough ruckus to make what they thought the perpetrator to kind of dispose and flee as soon as possible. So it was almost like a really messy, like when they look at the scene and when they put everything together, this wasn't like a thought out thing. It just looked like a extremely disorganized. It was disorganized, messy, and even just the body exposed where it was, was just like, this is odd. Right. Uh, Police found her car in front of her cabin that was packed for the trip that she never made. Remember to go visit her friend. Her stuff was in the trunk of the car. Um, everything was was still there, ready to go. Okay, so after two days of investigation, on July 24th, the FBI held a press conference um, where they announced that they already had a suspect in custody. And okay. they he was under strong suspicion of murder. Um, the way they were able to track this person down was because it was such a hurry, hurried and messy, like disorganized murder that he actually left footprints. Sorry, I'm getting all mixed up. He left footprints behind, which led to his captor. Okay. Or capture. The suspect was da, 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 
Carrie Carrie Stainer, 37 years old. So remember, Kaner had been Stainer had been questioned months earlier when the search began for uh, Carol and Julie and Sylvina. Right, and they noted that he seemed like calm and normal. So yeah, like, nah, so him. they only detained him and asked him questions and then let him go. This time they searched his truck and took his backpack from his truck okay. and kept it. And when they released him, they released him with a warning because they still, they they had some evidence, but nothing was, everything was circumstantial, right? Right. And so they t- said, listen, we're going to let you go. Do not leave El Portal. Like, you need to stay here. Well, according to several witnesses, Carrie was very angry that they took his pack and that they searched his truck. And they also searched his apartment. And that is when authorities found the evidence they needed to link him to Armstrong's murder. Okay. And they also found evidence that was able to link him to the murders in Yosemite of the three tourists. On July 26, when they went to arrest him, he was gone. They were able, they were able to quickly track him down though, because where do you think he was? Where's his favorite place? Oh, he was at the nudist colony. He was at the Laguna del Sol nudist colony. Um, The manager of the colony saw the news reports on Stainer, so he called the police right away. He's like, yeah. He knows him on site. Exactly. He's like, yeah, that guy and his penis are here. Yeah. (laughs) They (laughs) they arrested Carrie at the nudist colony on Saturday, July 24th. That must have been a little awkward. I wonder if they ask him to put clothes on before you arrest him, or do they just... I've heard this before. Not this story, but I Uh think on... I can't remember where I heard this. I heard this on a podcast recently mm-hmm. where it was told from either an investigator or the policeman. The person who did the arresting was saying that they had to arrest somebody at a nudist colony um, or like that they had gotten to their house and they were nude when they arrived. So they were like, put some pants on oh. so I can arrest you. Oh, well, yeah, because I would think you would run into like um, inappropriate, like things like they could say you touched me or you did this or you know so i would think you would need pants on right i mean also i i don't want your ball sweat in my car so well yeah and let's get some barrier there i also don't want like um like i also don't want to sit where other people have been sitting with my bare butt like there's fluids everywhere I'm just glad I'm not a nudist. Okay. Uh, I'd feel very uncomfortable all the time. That would be awful. Oh, I can't. Okay. Never mind. Okay. Thinking about nudes. Here we go. Um, Now, Carrie, after he's arrested, he's not like, no, guys, I didn't do this. He's not denying it. As a matter of fact, on the way to the police station, the detective in the car, he confessed everything to. He's like, yep, I killed Joey. Like, thanks for... I'm glad you guys caught me. He told the detective that her killing, like the act of him killing her, was comparable to, and I quote, reading a soup label. Not really sure what he meant by that. Like, was it just like a robotic thing or was it just like a a soup soup label. label? This one's chicken noodle. 
Like, yeah, I, I like, did he just do it? Is he saying he just did it to did it? Did it? Is he saying he just did it to do it? Or is he saying it was boring? Like, I'm not quite sure what he meant by the soup label comment. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit of a weird way to put it. Yeah. So I don't know, but it's Carrie Stainer and woof, this guy, douche. Now, when he was finally in custody, he also confessed to the murder to murdering Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso. Okay. As news of his arrest broke, people who knew Stainer were absolutely shocked. Based on the way he was described, I don't blame them. Yeah. I probably would be too. Yeah. Even his former bosses at the glass company he worked for said that, you know, they knew Stainer since he was a child and that it just didn't match up. Everybody was just like, what? How? Like, are you sure? Yeah. Now, police still believed at this point that there were two people involved. So they were trying to press Stainer for his accomplice like who who helped you with this who worked with you because they really didn't believe he acted alone and it almost from the reports i've read gave stainer kind of like a a like he kind of got really flattered by that like oh like you think this was two people no this this is so crazy that more than one person like this was only me that's how good i am um now, the FBI response, the FBI evidence response team, um, they conducted a search of room 509, and that is where Carol and Sylvina and Julie had stayed. And they collected evidence that was consistent with Stainer's confession, which sealed the deal for them, right? Okay. Um, because, and this wasn't released to the public, but he did sexually assault Julie Sylvina and um, not Carol, but he sexually assaulted the two younger girls. Mm-hmm. And he actually had killed Carol and Sylvina that same night. Oh. So they had evidence of that already. His confession corroborated all of that. So did he kill them in the room? Yes. And he cleaned it up. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So during his confessions, too, he also told the police that he had gone to Modesto purposely to toss Carol's wallet just out the window onto the sidewalk, purposely to throw them off. So he was kind of bragging about that, too. He's like, oh, yeah, do you know how you found her wallet over there? It's because I did that. I I threw it out because I knew it would throw you off, and it did. So like this, it's almost like, I feel like he, he committed these crimes and he was like, wow, I'm really good at this. Like after talking to the police, he was like, wow, like I could get away with this. Um, Stainer then asked investigators, okay, so I told you guys the truth. So now can you get a hold of some of those producers in LA? Because if my brother got a movie made out of his ordeal, I should get a movie too. What? Yeah. Police were like, uh, okay. The next day, Stainer allowed himself to be interviewed by a reporter from KNTV. The interview was very strange and he abruptly announced like during the interview, um, I'm guilty. I did murder Carol Sund, Julie Sund, Sylvina Peloso, and Joey Armstrong. 
but none of these women were sexually abused in any way. Like he just blurted that out what? in the middle of the interview. Yeah. Um, in that same interview, he also said that he had fantasized about killing women for the last 30 years. Oh. And he also admitted that he strangled uh, Pelosi or Peloso, sorry, and Carol in their cabin at the lodge and that he killed Julie the next morning after taking her that night to a lake. So he strangled, basically what he did was he strangled Carol and the exchange student, put them in the trunk of the Pontiac. Mm-hmm. Julie was was still alive. I'm not sure how he, he had to have gagged her to get her to the car without screaming, or maybe she was knocked out or unconscious. Or she was just so terrified that she yeah. did whatever he told her to. Uh-huh. And so Julie wasn't killed till the next morning. Man, that is so sad. Uh-huh. Two days after that, he then took the rented Pontiac with the bodies of um, Peloso and Carol inside and dumped it and burned it. And now he tells the police at this point, I really thought I got away with it, um, especially after you guys interviewed me and then totally let me go. Um, and he said, and, you know, after that, I was like, OK, I got away with it once. I'm not going to do this again. But That's then not he how it works. No, but then he said he got the urge to kill again mm-hmm. when he just so happened to strike up a conversation with Joey after a chance run-in with her. So I he didn't plan on killing her. He said no, he, but wrong place, he wrong got, time. got the urge. Yeah. Um, so FBI special agent Jeffrey Rinnick wrote a book called In the Name of Children and FBI Agents Relentless Pursuit of the Nation's Worst Predators. And, um, he said that when Stainer gave his full confession, he knew he would be sentenced to death. So he quoted Stainer as saying, and I quote, it means I can die with a clear conscience now. Whenever that day comes, Stainer said, according to Rennick, I know they're going to give me the death penalty. Even if I confess, they are going to give me death. So it was almost as if um, Stainer thought, well, I know I'm going to die anyways. And that's the only reason why, you know, I did it or why what I confessed to it. Yeah. You do not get a clear conscience just because yeah. you said what you were like, mm. what you did. Almost if, as if that's going to az- absolve him of his any sins, right? Right. He's yes, I did it. it like a con- like a, uh-huh. a Catholic confession. Exactly. So Stainer first went to trial in two thousand at in a federal court for the murder of Joey Armstrong because she was killed on. Federal, federal property, yeah. right? Yeah, on federal land. Um, so he pled guilty to murder. Um, the court listened to testimonial and um, a record of Carrie's confession about how he claimed that he just had an urge and lost control and that he had no intention of cutting off her head, but that she just made him really mad when she kept fighting back. So oh, I'm sorry that she wanted to live. Yeah. So he was like, it, dude, it's her fault that I cut off her head. She was Ugh. like making a big ruckus um, in July 2000. So, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Um, That's one thing that I was going to ask is that the police thought this was such a rush crime scene, but like it takes time to cut off a head. I don't. Yeah. Well, remember so this happened rushed- in the evening. 
Right. Because but how rushed could this really have been? Maybe like, I don't know. I see. I, I don't, don't even think... want to know how long it takes to cut off a head or how much effort. Right. Because see, there's a lot of like muscle and then. And tissue and your bone. spine. And that's why I think that this was not actually rushed like the police thought it was. It was just frenzied because maybe he really did just have an urge. And once he got past that, he was just done. He didn't feel like dealing with it. Yeah. And I think that's what they probably meant by frenzied or rushed was that he didn't even have time to conceal the body or anything that it was. just No, no. But he did have time. If he had time to cut off her head, he had time to deal with the crime scene. I I don't think so, because, again, this was like it. Like the stream was right next to that area where she lived. There's 30 other cabins there with other people living there. So maybe he had heard people. Maybe people were around. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I cannot reconcile them thinking that this was rushed with her being decapitated. The two don't yeah. make sense to me. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm. I don't know. But and maybe, maybe it's just the way that we're interpreting Think, yeah. the way they said it but something about that just seems like it doesn't match. Yeah, maybe. Well, in July 2000, a judge rules that the government can seek the death penalty for Carrie Stainer. Not and no, but then in September 2000, Carrie went with a plea bargain to receive life in prison for the federal um, murder charges to avoid the death penalty. What? Yeah. So they're like, and I don't know what the plea deal is for if he committed, if he said he was guilty. Oh, I think the plea deal came into effect because then they were going to charge him with the, the, the other murders to give more information or I forget. Or just to avoid a trial. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. In 2001, the Sund and Sylvina Peloso families pursued wrongful death suits against the Cedar Lodge, um, which they ended up winning later on, both of them. Really? Yes, because they felt that it was um, the responsibility of the employees at the lodge to for the security of their guests. And um, obviously, it wasn't. Secure. I guess what more could the lodge have done to prevent hiring him? Because by all accounts, he had no criminal record. Everybody yeah. liked him. He didn't seem weird. So really, even if the lodge did everything right, they probably still would have hired this guy. So personally, I'm not sure how the lodge is at fault here. Yeah, I don't know. All I know is that the couple of years later, they ended up winning that um, that suit, that wrongful death suit. Okay. In May 2002, um, he was moved from Mariposa County to Santa Clara County um, for that trial. And he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity for the murder of the three women. And that what? trial, yeah, that, so listen to his, listen oh to God. the listen sanity to plea. Uh-huh. The trial began in mid-July. George Williamson served as head prosecutor and Marsha Morrissey served as the head defense. And the jury was played Stainer's taped confession. Mm. And in that confession, they listened to how he calmly retells how he strangled 16-year-old Sylvina in the motel bathtub, 
how he sexually assaulted, assaulted Julie's son for hours before killing her. And then the jury also heard in his confession how he gained access to their room by pretending he needed to fix a leak in the sink in their hotel room. That is when he said he got in, he tied them up, sexually assaulted both of the teens, and then killed Sylvina and Carol that night. And then he carried Julie to a Vista Point near Lake Don Pedro, where he pledged his love to her and then slit her throat as the sun came up. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he stood behind her, made her look at the sunrise, told her he loved her, and slit her throat. You know what this kind of reminds me of? Hmm. Rachel Barber. Yeah. And how Carolyn, Caroline made her like meditate and think happy thoughts right mm-hmm. before she killed her. I wonder if they think that makes them feel better or like that's just bizarre to me and disgusting. Yeah. And him pledging his like this whole thing the, seems very strange. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the defense team, I mean, after listening to all that, the defense team is like, well, listen. He was coerced into giving that confession. Like, I mean, what else do they have to stand on, right? Yeah, I mean, they they don't have a whole lot. Yeah, and that was a little harder for them to prove, especially after the jury heard Stainer ask the FBI for a few demands in his official confession. Oh, he said, okay. uh, so I know there's some reward money. Um, and since I told you I killed them, that's information. So if you could give, if you could give that reward money to my parents and also I know I'm going to go to jail. So if you could do that close to Merced, please. Um, so my parents don't have to travel a long distance to come visit me. Oh, and also, uh, if it's not too big of an ask, can I get some child pornography? What? Uh, yes. He asked for some child pornography to look at while in prison. What? <laughs> yes. I don't have words i think he was probably just like well since i'm in prison like what why like i'm already in trouble what's the harm in looking at something um, i don't understand like come on i'm actually so given what you just said i am actually more likely to believe that he's insane he maybe (laughs) he was legitimately having some kind of mental disorder Mm -hmm. um Maybe not enough that well, he's not guilty, but that you now that you bring that up, a psychologist did testify that after you know examining Stainer, he was diagnosed with OCD, which duh, mild autism. Okay, and that, that would also explain the strange requests. Okay, uh huh. And paraphilia, which is the experience of intense sexual arousal to atypical objects, fantasies, and situations. So what was his paraphilia? His paraphilia is being sexually aroused by being naked in nature. Remember how he liked to just walk a lot naked? I guess that was very 
he liked that because that was very sexually satisfying to I him. I guess that's a form of exhibitionism, which goes back to him exposing himself as a kid. I think there's some questionable things that happened with trees, which what? sounds, yeah. I read a little, I read really? a little, it, it wasn't. It, this the article I read wasn't from a credible source, but okay. the only thing I can say about this is like splinters there, like I would hurt and not be comfortable. I mean, I'm I'm sure he'd figured something out and waxy, like the wax on trees. I mean, it it depends what he's doing. There's a lot of different things you can do with your parts. I just picture the abrasiveness of the tree trunk, like especially the big redwoods. Well, he's not like thrusting against a trunk. How do you know? It's not like he's just hugging it and like, like laying against it flaccid. I mean, he doesn't. Have I hate the word flaccid. I can't even believe I said it. <laughs> Moving on. Holy cow. Never. Oh. I oh just my God. disgusted myself. Um, eventually, they found that he was sane and they convicted him of three counts of first degree murder um, in August of 2002. Okay. Now, on a kind of a little side note here, and you and I have talked about this before, nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. These are two brothers you know, from the same family, same parents, one is a hero, the other turns into a serial killer, right? Right. Um, so, like, how how does that happen, right? Well, Arguably, when, uh -huh. they did not experience the same upbringing. No, and that's exactly leads me to this. While going undergoing evaluations by several psychiatrists after he was arrested, they noted that the Stainer family actually had a long history of mental illness and sexual abuse. And oh. I brought this up in the Stephen Stainer case. I forgot about that. For five generations, okay? Wow. Delbert, Carrie's father... That is was, such a, a ridiculous name. I'm sorry. Yeah. Was ordered at one point to get therapy for molesting his own daughters. Oh, you, I've, yeah. I've so totally remember the mom, that. Carrie's mom was known as very like kind of cold and yeah. very like distant from her children. And that was because she was molested by her own father. Right. And so she she decided that no affection should be shown to children at all, probably because just like of the backwards way. It, it's a massive overcorrection. Uh -huh. And she was so uncomfortable with the, the quote unquote affection she received that mm -hmm. she didn't want to be anywhere near that. So she overcorrected, did the exact opposite. Exactly. And so she overcorrected so much. But she ended up marrying a man who did the same thing to her daughters. Yeah. Um, one of Carrie's sisters actually testified later that Carrie would urinate on her and inappropriately touch her when she was 10 years old. I'm, I'm wondering how much of what his dad was doing he caught on to. You know what? I don't know. And I think this was also one of those behaviors that people really didn't pay attention to, or maybe she didn't like it just talk. went unreported. 
be because of Stephen's absence, right? Of yeah. Of so maybe it was Stephen unnoticed. Was mm-hmm. Maybe due to the fact that the father was doing mm-hmm. whatever she she was just like this is just how life is so i'm not gonna say i can't say anything about dad won't say anything about carrie mm-hmm. yeah and um a cousin of carrie stainer also reported later that he had recorded her in the bathroom and she knew that he had recorded her in a bedroom when she was undressing at one point when he was a teenager and again all of this came out like later when yeah. people were like finally like oh yeah um oh yeah i remember he did this to me and, yeah. and this happened to me and that's yeah. so weird isn't that weird so in another evaluation carrie also reported that he had had obsessive thoughts as a child prior to Stephen being kidnapped. So the OCD, I think, had always been there, which also explains him ripping out his hair, too, you know? Yeah, because, um, like I said, that's an anxiety trigger. Mm-hmm. But um, I caught on to that when you said that he had been having these thoughts and feelings for 30 years. Uh-huh. That was before his brother went missing because he was, what did you say, 34, 37? Yes, 37. And also... Carrie later brought up that he after so since these things were going on even before Stephen went missing, when Stephen went missing, he often wondered if those intrusive thoughts and his odd behavior and all the bad things he thought about and did was the reason Stephen was kidnapped. Like, oh, that universe was punishing him for these things. Which probably added a whole nother layer of, like, mental just Which, turmoil for right. this 11-year-old. And, and him wishing on stars every night is him literally asking uh-huh. the universe to take back this horrible thing it did. Yeah. Oh, and after so hearing after hearing that, I thought, too, well, then that makes sense because then after Stephen dies... He's probably like, I mean, now I can do all of this and, you know, like. Because in some weird, sick, twisted way, his brother dying was like a prepayment for all these horrible things he could do. Yeah. That is, oh my God. Mm -hmm. See, this is the kind of stuff that I love like digging into. Yeah. Yeah. So today, Stephen Stainer is serving his time at San Quentin Penitentiary. Um, he is serving his sentence life without the possibility of parole. Um, he is in the same cell block, coincidentally, as Scott Peterson, who we just had a conversation about. Yes, we did. (laughs) Right before this in another episode. Yeah. That, which our tippy episode. (laughs) Um, so yeah. That is the story of Carrie Stainer. Now, I'm going to confess something right now. And and please don't think I am weird. Well, it's too late. We all know I'm weird. <laughs> okay. So, Stephen Stainer, remember, we saw pictures of him as a young... Um, so cute. So cute. I have to confess, had you not known that Carrie Stainer was a 
horrific douchebag. I gotta look him up now. Is he you would you would probably be like, you know, he's not that bad. Like, yeah. Yeah, you can come fix the leak in my in my motel room. Like Okay. I'm I'm looking at a photo of him. Are you looking at a recent one? Don't look at a recent one. I'm, look I'm at- looking at an older one of him and you can definitely see that there's something up there. Like his eyes are a little too empty for me. But looking at a young picture of him, yeah, man, like his yearbook him. picture. Did you look at his yearbook yeah, picture? That's what looking at, he's cute. The nice jawline. Yes. The full lips. I, I was looking at that too. I'm like, man, look, he's cute. He reminds me of someone. Uh, like a um celebrity, like a yeah. He looks a little, bit? a little bit. I can see that. Now his arrest picture from when he was arrested for the murder of Joey Armstrong. He has that handlebar mustache, and he looks creepy there. <laughs> and then I found a picture, a recent picture of him in jail, and yeah, it's just not treating him well. Um, but I mean, granted, um, if his eyes weren't so soulless, because honestly, they do look kind of black and empty um he's still not a bad looking guy although like something about his hairline makes makes like his the top of his head look very like you know how oh man what what movie is that um mars attacks I don't know that one I'm sure my husband knows that one uh it's like an old I want to say it's a 90s late 90s alien movie but like the the classic like really big at the top head that tapers down to a really skinny chin what his picture looks like like yeah the upper part of his head is very large yeah yeah i could see that either way he seems like he's an attractive person but like he's also a douche canoe so sad but true unfortunately and you know he's locked up, and hopefully he can't really hurt anyone no. anymore. No, and now oh, he's God. friends with Scott Peterson. I don't think Scott Peterson has friends. <laughs> oh, Scott, you're a douche canoe as well. But we already covered that. We need to do. Did we decide we were going to do a deep dive on Scott? Eventually, on the yes. theories. I think I think we should do an episode just on the theories out there. Or the evidence. I don't know. One day. Anywho, there you go. Carrie Stainer in a crunchy nutshell. I don't like crunchy. <laughs> I don't like flaccid. I don't like hearing that people are are crunchy. That's something I do not enjoy. No. I don't enjoy, no, anything. Well, except, I guess, researching murder and telling you about it. <laughs> Which is odd. Yeah. But okay. Okay. Uh, Thank you for that. Yeah. You're welcome. So enjoy that information. Do what you will. Yeah. I'll stew on that for a little bit. Yeah. And have fun. Next week I will prepare a a true crime morsel for you all. Ooh. I have three morsels all set up and not, well, they're not ready to go after research, but. But you at least have them in mind. I have them in mind. I'm pretty excited. I, um, so my episode next week, uh, just as a little teaser for everybody is, um, the case that made me decide that I wanted to do a podcast. Oh, really? Yes. 
Oh, that's good. Yeah, I've been waiting to cover it for a really long time because I wanted to get to a place where like our research skills and everything were like up to par and we could do the storytelling justice and we could do like a really good job with it because I think this story is so important. Oh man, so I want to know which I'm one I'm really it is. excited that we can finally do this. Yeah. What is it? You'll find out next week. Ah. <laughs> man, you can't. Oh man. All right. I guess I'll find out next week. Yep. We'll see you All then, right. everybody. Yes. Bye. Bye. Kat and I are so grateful for all of our listeners, and we love hearing from you guys. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Interest Podcast and let us know your thoughts on this week's case. We want to cover the things that you guys want to hear, so please email us your case suggestions at alternativeinterestpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you so much for listening and sharing us with your friends. Be good to each other, and we'll see you next week.